in order to understand the most that we can from the scriptures, we always need to understand the context, what's taking place here. Uh, we can take isolated verses out sometimes and make a case for something that those scriptures aren't really saying. And so it's important that we understand where this is coming from. And as we've been studying the book of Malachi, I've just been amazed at the things that God has stored in this treasure chest in the last book of the Old Testament that are coming to to view, that are coming to the surface and so practical, so real to life, uh, what we're facing now. Uh, So as we talk about this, it's important to remember uh, the nation of Israel at that time in 430 B.C. approximately, uh, tell me some things about it. What is the condition of the people in Israel at that point in history? And this is, uh, I'm serious. Tell me some things, please. What are some things you've learned about Israel at this point in time? Pardon? They're under the <laughs> Spoken from our Persian brother. <laughs> they are under the power and under the dominion of the Persians. Thank you, brother. Very good. That's awesome. They are no longer an independent state with any power and prestige. They are completely at the whims of the Persians. What's another? Brian? Yeah. Yeah, the honeymoon is over there. Their return is, is no longer the thrill that it was at one time. What about the size of the nation? Yeah, they are. It's, it's half the size of Sedgwick County. 600 square miles about, situated along the river. At one time, I think it was 13,000 square miles. Some sort of drought Yes, there's a drought and a famine going on at that time, and it's crushing them economically. Population. It's decimated, yeah. From, from the time of David, perhaps at its peak, over 5 million people likely, and now it's down to about 150,000. That's what these people are living in the midst of. It is, it is a difficult time. It is a hard time for them. Uh, what are some words that describe, and Brian touched on it a bit, what are uh, single words that describe the condition of these people in their relationship with God? Where are they spiritually? Rebellion. Rebellion. Good. What else? Apathetic, yes, very much so. I'm just dried up. They're complaining. Yeah, we see that throughout this. Amen, yeah. They're going through the motions. And they're expecting God to to bless that even though their hearts are far from Him. Praise the Lord. We talk about the sins that God has confronted them them with already here in Malachi. Uh, They are ungrateful. God speaks of his love for them in Malachi 1 and they respond, how have you loved us? And they use these questions, throwing it back in in God's face each moment. They're not questions of inquiry. They're questions of objection, of of rebellion against what he says. Uh, God says, they despise me. He says, where is my honor? The Lord asks of the priests who have despised his name. In what way have we despised your name? They retort. They have offered lame and sick and blind animal sacrifice in defiance of the requirements for perfect and spotless offerings in God's law. They have complained that serving God is a burden. It's a tiring job. And Yahweh asserts that the priests have neglected their role and utterly failed to lead the people in worship and knowledge of God. They have come to the altar with 
hypocritical weeping, empty weeping, with no heart for repentance. And as we saw in chapter 2, as Phil taught about that, they have divorced their spouses and they have entered into marriage with neighboring groups of people and fallen into the neighboring country's idolatry. That's the condition of these people about a hundred years after they had come out of Babylon in return. It's a tough time in the heart of Israel. Last week we looked at a word, immutability. We focused on that for a bit. Remember in Malachi 3, verse 6, it says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, you are not consumed. God does not change. He is immutable. And this is an attribute that only God has. We are not immutable. No matter how steady you may think you are, none of us are immutable, nor can we be. Physically, we are constantly changing. We get bigger or we get smaller. Our very cells are constantly replenishing throughout our body. 330 billion cells are replaced daily in your body. That's about 1% of our total number of cells. So that means over a period of 90 to 100 days, 30 trillion cells have replenished. And that's almost like a new body. That's how much we change just physically. Mentally we grow or we can revert. We can learn and certainly we forget. We change in opinion and understanding. But God does not. He is perfect and cannot change. He cannot change for the better. Or it would mean that he is imperfect or had room for improvement. And therefore is not God. And he cannot change for the worse in any way because he would become less than he is. And a less than the perfect God that he must be. But this is a comfort. This is not a fearful thing. Because God says, because I do not change, you are not consumed. We can trust Him. God actually says that because I do not change, you are not consumed. His faithfulness will be to His promises. His mercy and grace will never fail. At Israel's worst, God did not rescind His promise to sustain that nation. Though it may be a small remnant at this point, and may be reduced even more, God will sustain His people and carry out His promises to them. Because He is unchanging, we can trust that He will fulfill His promise, and perhaps His greatest promise for most of us, that He will save anyone who repents and believes on Him. That is a done deal. That is a surety. And He will not waver. He is a merciful God, and He has provided a way to become His sons and daughters through His own Son, Jesus Christ. And He will not fail those who trust in Him. Vocabulary time again. A God-only attribute like immutability is called what? Incommunicable. It's an incommunicable attribute, which means that God cannot communicate it to us. We will never be immutable. It's impossible. God will not give that to us, nor could we do it. Now, we humans, we have many flaws and weaknesses. A common one for many of us 
And no hands, but a common one for many of us is that we can be very preoccupied, worried, or even obsessed with knowing what others say about us. Ever have that struggle? Just a few days ago, I was meeting with a brother and he shared with me that this person had told him that another person had said this about something I believed. And that was okay, and I don't think it was gossip. But it did pique my curiosity, wondering, what else may people be saying? Probably not much. But, but that's in our minds so constantly. This is not unique to us as individuals. Large groups of people, organizations, and entire nations have a very keen interest in knowing what other groups or nations are saying about them. The United States has a huge government organization with thousands of employees and a budget of over $60 billion dollars for the National Intelligence Program and $23 billion for the Military Intelligence Program. That's a lot of money. Thousands of employees dedicated to knowing what is being said or going on about others' interest in us. Now much of that acute curiosity is based on the interest of national security at its best and other less noble advantages at its worst. As this shows, nations go to great length to find out what foreign officials and operatives are saying. I had the privilege and, and fun of going with two of my children to the National Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. And there they have on display all these ways that nations and organizations have tried to find out what others are saying about them. One was a they had followed this one particular diplomat carefully and they knew what he did with his shoes. He wore shoes that you could have resold but that you don't do that so much anymore. I, I used to do that a lot. But they knew where this guy would get his, soles, his shoes resold and they set up an arrangement with that shoe repairman and they implanted a small receiver inside of the heel of his shoe and when he got those shoes back there was a receiver and a transmitter there, or a microphone and a transmitter, and so they could follow and listen to what this guy was saying in his high-level meetings wearing these nice shoes. Another really weird one was they had done an experiment with cats, and they would implant a, a microphone in the ear of the cat, and they would implant a long wire down the spine and into the tail of the cat, and put uh, the battery and uh, and... and I guess it was a transmitter in the chest and then they sewed it back up and, and let the cat go and with the idea of trying to find out what was being said in someone's particular home uh, by using this sort of a device uh, it didn't go very well I think they spent 12 million dollars and they ditched the effort but they will try all sorts of things because we want to know what is being said about us but Yahweh the Lord he is beyond all this foolishness because God not only does not change, but He knows all things. And this morning we read, He hears all things. You see, He is present everywhere and always. So we have two new attributes to add this morning. He is omniscient. It means He possesses all knowledge. God knows everything. And He is omnipresent. He is present in all places. Praise God, He is here with us this morning. There is no place we can go that He is not. 
He is faithful to us. There is nothing, though, that he cannot, or excuse me, there is nothing that he doesn't know or understand. You see, there is nothing God will ever learn or discover. There will be no new findings for the mind of God. He has full knowledge of everything, everywhere, and not only that, but throughout all time, past, present, and future. Everything, everywhere. The Word of God repeats this over and over. In 1 Kings chapter 8, it says, You alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. Isaiah 40, Have you not known, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary, His understanding is unsearchable. Psalm 147, He counts the number of the stars, He calls them all by name. And we can't even figure out how many there are. And he knows everyone. And he has placed them there. And he has named them. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. Hebrews 4.13 And there is no creature hidden from his sight. But all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Finally, 1 John 3.20 If our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. And knows all things. But what difference does it make? What, what difference does it make that God knows all and hears all that we say and do? What does it matter that He's omniscient and omnipresent? Well, without a doubt, God hears us. The question is what are we saying? What are we saying? That's what we will examine this morning. And here is the difference. That God's omniscience and omnipresence made in Israel in 430 B.C. Here's what the Yahweh's critics, what the Lord's critics were saying. First of all, he hears them. Verse 13. Your words have been harsh against me, says the Lord. Harsh. It means severe. It can be translated arrogant. That's the way you're speaking. And, and here they go again. Yet you say... What have we spoken against you? Now each charge the Lord has made against them. Each time he has called them to turn from their sin and be restored. Even when he has promised them great blessing. If they will obey. The Israelites have repeatedly denied his indictment with their cynical questions. In what way have you loved us? In what way have we despised your name? In what way have we defiled you? In what way have we wearied him? Where is the God of justice? In what way shall we return? In what way have we robbed you? And now, what have we spoken against you? Well, here is Israel's assessment of God. Verse 14, you say, It is useless to serve God. What profit is it that we have kept His ordinance and that we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts? God's critics give three complaints here. And listen to them carefully. Because the word of God is a mirror for us. And we are to look at it and not walk away. As James says. But we are to do what we see here. And let it, let it change us. The first one says it's useless to serve God. It's vain. It's, it's worthless. What do we gain from serving God? So far nothing they, they are saying. And to serve means to work or to till or to serve. What, what good is there in this? What do we get out of it? Secondly, what Prophet is it that we have kept his ordinance. The word prophet here is used very intentionally. 
The Israelites wanted to profit from keeping God's word. But Beitzav, which is the Hebrew word here, translated prophet, has nothing to do with spiritual blessing or richer relationship with God. It is most often translated as plunder, as covetousness, as ill-gotten gains, unjust gains. The Old Testament word dictionary describes this word saying, personal advantage derived from some activity. It is very easy for the acquisition of personal gain to become the ruling motive of one's life. Lust for personal gain is in direct opposition to unselfish devotion to God. It must inevitably destroy the person who succumbs to it. Perhaps its most disastrous result is its tendency to dull the hearing of God's word. End quote. Dull the hearing of God's word. That is all over Israel at this time. Here are a few places in Scripture using this word for what the Israelites were disappointed in not getting. Isaiah 33, 15. He who walks righteously and speaks uprightly, he who despises the gain of oppression. Beitzah, the gain of oppression. Ezekiel 33, 31. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their beitzah, their own gain. Habakkuk 2, verse 9. Woe to him who covets beitzah, evil gain, beitzah, for his house, that he may set his nest on high. Woe to him who covets evil gain for his house. That's what the Israelites wanted out of their obedience to God. Personal plunder and unjust gain. Now, do we ever hear that tune this day? We do constantly. The Word of Life preachers are giving that to the people without end, constantly. And you know something? They gain a following because that is what man wants. He wants an unjust gain. He wants plunder out of his religion, out of his somewhat spiritual life. There's got to be something to benefit there. But... It is not always monetary selfishness infecting our service to God. Sometimes it's other things. What could it be? Sometimes it's a desire to be noticed. We serve and, and if we don't hear a thanks or we're not acknowledged or some way, we think, oh, well, was that worth it? Sometimes we want to some, some kind of merit, something that, that would put us up higher on our scorecard with God or, or higher in our scorecard and popularity among the church that would advance us into positions. Is that the motive we have sometimes? You know, a brother was sharing with me and, and I understand this, I've been there, having made a significant sacrifice to help and serve uh, another brother and then having to make up for that sacrifice even further by putting in extra time and, 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 and being taken away from other things. And as you're putting in that extra time and you're taken away from other things, you begin to wonder, you know, wh where's the glamour in this? Now here I am, I'm by myself, I'm working these late hours trying to make up for what I had given over here. We, we so often have these selfish hearts that we want something to happen to us favorably because we serve God. 
We may be disappointed when we are not noticed or thanked when we serve. We may expect some sort of promotion or praise. Have you or I, do we have a motive of humility to serve? Do we have a joy in sacrificing to God our time and our resources for His glory? Or are we more sophisticated? Is the selfish gain what we desire in some way? Check the motives. When we serve, consider the heart and where are we in this? And when you see it, don't give it all up. Just say, Lord, forgive me. That old nature, that ugliness in me is rising up again. I repent. And thank you for the privilege of being able to serve you. The Israelites went on. They further justified their complaints for some prophets because we have walked as mourners before the Lord of hosts. Mourners here literally is translated blackish ones. One commentator says that people pretended to grieve for their sins walking around in sackcloth to convey apparent sorrow. False believers, critics of God, we do this all the time. They were doing it 300 years before Malachi at the time of Isaiah. Read in Isaiah 58. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen? Why have we afflicted our souls and you take no notice? In fact, the day of your fast You find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Then Job, speaking perhaps 1,500 years before Malachi, said, Yet they say to God, Depart from us. For we do not desire the knowledge of your ways. Who is the Almighty that we should serve Him? And what profit do we have if we pray to Him? And finally, in Zechariah. Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Say to all the people of the land and to the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh month during those 70 years, during that exile, did you really fast for me? And then he repeats it. For me, Israel's conclusion from all this regarding the ungodly is in verse 15. So now, we call the proud blessed. For those who do wickedness are raised up. They even tempt God and they go free. Proud, it's a word that means arrogant. And it's zed and it has three wicked edges. It's described this way, the proud. First of all, they are presumptuous. The dictionary goes to say, because a person is proud, he presumes too much in his favor, especially in the sense of authority. What that means is they love to be boss. They love to call the shots. They have this presumption about them. Secondly, rebellion. Because the person is proud, he asserts his own will to the point of rebelling against one in authority over him. And thirdly, willful disobedience. And it's similar, but it's an intentional, calculated defiance of authority. 
That's who they are saying are the blessed. Those that are presumptuous. Those that are in rebellion. Those have, who have a willful disobedience to God. The Israelites declare, now we will call those proud blessed. Because, why? Because the doers of wickedness are being built up. Doers of wickedness is described with two words here. The first word is asa. It means to do or make. And that's a good word. In the, in the book of Genesis in the first chapter, it's used several times. God made, or asa, the firmament. The fruit tree yielding, or asa, fruit. God made... I saw two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And finally, then God saw everything that he had, I saw, that he had made, and indeed it was very good. The essence of the word here is to create or make something, but what are these Israelites making at this time? It says they're making wickedness, they're making fault, they're making wrong. The makers of wickedness, as they watch, are being built up, they are repaired, they grow, they are a success. That's what we really want, they say. We want to be a success, not serve in obscurity. And we look around us in this culture in which we live, and it just seems like we see it more and more of what the psalmist would often write about too. The wicked prosper in what they are doing. They're, being, they're building bigger companies. They're, they're gaining greater power and authority. The, the riches are, are just compounding for the wicked. Do we really want to serve this God? The ESV goes on and says, Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. They put God to the test and they get away with it. In verse 10, God told the Israelites, Obey me in paying the tithes and offerings. Then test me and see that I will do this. Test me. But that is not what the Israelites are doing here. They are working evil. They are creating wickedness. They are testing the limits of God's long suffering. They are literally trying to see how much selfishness they can get away with. Pushing God as far as they can. Matthew Henry said, Let them that then trust God to provide for them and their comfort. Quote, Let God be first served and then prove me herewith, saith the Lord of hosts, whether I will not open the windows of heaven. But the Israelites say, Let God give us our plenty again as formerly, and He try us, whether we will not then bring Him His tithes and offerings as we did formerly. They want to flip it over. Here God offers them and says, Test me and you will see. He makes a promise essentially. And they're saying, No, give us what we want and then test us to see if we will come through. These three wicked edges are a mirror in God's word. This can be you. This could be me. And before we would even realize it. Hebrews 3 says. Beware brethren. Lest there be in any of you. An evil heart of unbelief. In departing from the living God. But exhort one another daily. While it is called today. Lest any of you be hardened. Through the deceitfulness of sin. That's what sin does. We see that constantly. It hardens. It calluses. Isaiah 5, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Are we not seeing that constantly? Those who would uphold what God has made in men and women are vilified. 
when they speak about how God made marriage and it is between a man and a woman. They're vilified as haters, even in, in some churches. They no longer see the truth for what it is. We have children, as you, you all know, in this transgender thing. Children being brutally, surgically abused. While our mainstream media, our large educational institutions, and our government are sanctioning and promoting it. What God made clear of what is good, we are calling evil. And it is everywhere. And it was happening in Israel at that time. And it is happening in this nation and in this world in which we live. Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike, are an abomination to the Lord. And I, and I will say this too. Uh, we, we see this battle going on around us now. And they are calling the right to be able to murder a child freedom. And a personal right of autonomy. And that's how far we are gone. Fifty years of this stuff has hardened our hearts. And we don't even hardly know how to understand it or look at it anymore. That's where sin goes. Let me tell you the four things here. The hypnotic hardening of sin will subtly and gradually progress through four stages in your life. First of all, it will blind your ability to, to discern between good and evil promptly and accurately. The black and white will become gray and fuzzy. A heart calloused by repeated sin is dulled to truth. And I tell you, brothers and sisters, if you will not give up some of these sins that are wrapped around your heart, you will not understand good from evil any, anymore either. It will callous you. Sin will do that. It will destroy your ability to understand good from evil. Secondly, it will diminish the word of God's prominence in your life. The Bible will become less and less to you. It will take less time in your life. You will spend less time meditating on verses. You will spend less time memorizing. You will spend less, you will have less skill in using the word. You will have less comfort from the word of God and you will have less conviction from the word of God. It will dull, dull you. It will diminish the word of God's prominence in your life. Thirdly, gradually it will enlarge the influence and, and listen to this, of your own personal opinion and your fleshly mind. You will base decisions and personal positions on common sense or practical reason rather than scripture even when they oppose scripture. <clears throat> Beware of that. Be careful of that. And fourthly, it will increase more and more the weight of worldly wisdom in your heart. What the world's experts say, the conclusions of the powerful and the persuasive will become your guide more and more. Sin will do that. But we flip over to the other side of truth. The arrogant critics were not the only ones talking. Praise God. What Yahweh's faithful were saying, verses 16 through 18. Yahweh hears his own. Then those who feared the Lord spoke to one another. You see, the Lord addresses his critics in verse 5. He says, And I will come near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, 
against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away to an alien. Why? He says, because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. But now, praise God, Yahweh responds to those who do fear him. Praise the Lord. There is a remnant there in Israel who do fear him. Yahweh responds to that remnant. Verse 16, and the Lord listened and heard them. Yahweh pays careful attention to the fearing. Listened. That word listen literally means it pricks up the ears. God's ears prick up metaphorically. It translates paying careful attention. He listens closely. The Lord pays very close and special attention to what his faithful are saying. In this case, very vivid attention to what they are saying to each other. And he hears. Now it's no surprise that God hears. But he not only hears, but this means a discernment with complete knowledge. He knows the heart and the mind of those who are speaking. God listened and he heard them. What does your conversation sound like? What does your conversation sound like? Between you and your wife or your husband. Do you talk about the Lord? Do you give praise to Him? One to another? Thank, thank the Lord with each other? Do you talk with Him together? I'm talking about do you pray? And pray often? How do you talk amongst each other? If you're single, do you and your friends, your roommates... Or all of your co-workers. Do you talk about Yahweh, the Lord? Is he a central part of your conversation? Now I know there's, there's times that are appropriate and times that are not. But are you looking for those appropriate times? Are you pushing for that? So that your words are honoring to him. What are you and your children talking about? Deuteronomy 6 says, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. And you shall talk of them. You shall talk of the word of God when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. There's not a whole lot of time in between there, is there? We are to be talking about God to our children. Sharing the word of God with them. Since God does listen and pays careful close attention to what you and I say, what does he hear? How do you think he would respond? Well, this is how the Lord God responded to the words of the Israelites who feared him. Several things here. and These, these are beautiful. Yahweh writes their name in an eternal record. Yahweh writes their names in an eternal record. It reads, So a book of remembrance was written before him. You see, many cultures have had books of remembrance where names of men and women who would receive reward were recorded. We can even think about it in that scripture. And I imagine many of you think about Esther in that, in that regard. Esther chapter 6 verse 1. That night the king could not sleep. So one was commanded to bring the book of the records of the chronicles. And they were read before the king. And it was found written that Mordecai 
had told of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, the doorkeepers who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. Then the king said, What honor or dignity has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? A book of record, a book of remembrance. Another is mentioned in Daniel, chapter 7, verse 10. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousands times ten thousands stood before him. That is an amazing sight to try to imagine. And then it says, The court was seated and the books were opened. This morning, who would be in the book Yahweh promises in Malachi 3.16? It says, It is for those who... Fear the Lord and meditate on His name. I have been convicted going through this. Uh, I need to pray constantly that my fear of the Lord would increase. Fear of the Lord is kind of an antiquated thing in many churches these days. You know, it's, it's really, you don't want to preach that. Um, well, it preaches it throughout the scriptures. And a fear of the Lord is healthy for us. It is important for us. It gets us on our knees. It causes us to plead. It causes us to confess. It causes us to repent. For we have a mighty God who is omniscient, omnipresent, and immutable and fully trustworthy. And to meditate on His name, meditate means to esteem or to honor in this case. There is a promised unforgettable record in the mind and heart of God for reward to men and women who fear and honor Him. Even while the rest of the nation wallows in wickedness, complaining and rebellion. You see, the faithful trust and obedience of God's people will never be forgotten by the Lord. Now Malachi doesn't record for us specifically what these faithful God-fearers were saying. So, what does conversation from those who fear and honor the Lord sound like? What does it sound like? Turn over to Ephesians 5. I want you to, to actually set your eyeballs on this to see this. Ephesians 5. Verse 19. I'll slide back to 18, the last part of it. But be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms, and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Submitting to one another in the fear of God. There's a pattern for us. This should be what occupies our conversation. Turn over to Acts 16. Acts 16, verse 25. And this is an, an, an interesting one. I, it's a little bit on the edge, but... 16:25. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So not only does God listen, but there may be others around you are hearing your conversation about God. This goes on, as many of you know, to lead to the testimony of the jailer who was overhearing them who comes to Christ in his whole household. God listens and others may listen and God may use what they hear to draw them to salvation. I want to give three brief examples, examples 
that actually in the Psalms may have even been rewritten at a time like this with Malachi. Psalm 79. And these, these Psalms, these two that I'm going to mention, they are marked by honesty, humility, confession, dependence upon the Lord, and supplication, request to Him. Psalm 79, 8. Oh, do not remember former iniquities against us. Let your tender mercies come speedily to meet us. For we have been brought very low. Help us, O God of our salvation, for the glory of your name, not for personal gain, for the glory of your name, and deliver us and provide atonement for our sins for your name's sake. Why should the nations say, Where is their God? Let there be known among the nations in our sight the avenging of the blood of your servants, which has been shed. Psalm 85. Lord, you have been favorable to your land. You have brought back the captivity of Jacob. You have forgiven the iniquity of your people. You have covered all their sin. Selah. You have taken away all your wrath. You have turned from the fierceness of your anger. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord, and grant us your salvation. May this be the kind of heart that we come to him with constantly, in humbleness, brokenness. We need his mercy. We are totally undeserving of it. But he is a gracious and lavish God. But the Lord promises even more. Verse 17. They shall be mine says the Lord of hosts. Mine is emphatic in the Hebrew. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, on that day that I make them my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spares his own son who serves him. Yahweh makes them into his own valuable treasures. They belong to me, he says. They are mine, says God. And he says he will make them his jewels. Some of you say special treasures or his treasured possessions. I will tell you this, and it's, it smacks on me first, but you are not a jewel naturally. Anybody know that? You are not a jewel naturally. Nor can you make yourself into a jewel, though you are given an eternity of years, a budget of billions, and the greatest skill on earth. You cannot and never will. Moreover, Scripture tells us we as natural men are so far from being jewels that actually we are all under sin. Romans 3 says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. And there is not even one. Their throat he says, is an open grave. And with their tongues, they keep deceiving. And the poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is not a description of a precious treasure. So, how... Can you become a jewel? God tells us here. And he uses that word asah. To make. To create. He says I make my jewel. I make 
my special treasure. Paul declares in Romans 8, God himself will conform those who love God into the beautiful image of his son. It is God who must do it. It is only he who can do it. And praise God, it is God who promises to do it. In Exodus it was written, You have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be a special treasure to me above all people, for the earth is mine. A special treasure. Deuteronomy 7, For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the pieces of faith people on the face of the earth. Psalm 135, For the Lord has chosen Jacob for himself, Israel for his special treasure. This is all about God. And he has chosen and makes him such. 1 Peter 2, 9, But you, speaking to us, those who have been grafted into the vine, who have become Israel, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. That is our purpose. We are His own special treasure so that we may proclaim Him to this dark world in which we live. Matthew Henry again says, They shall be gathered up out of the dirt into which they are now thrown and gathered together from all places to which they are now scattered. He shall send forth his angels to gather his elect who are his jewels from the four winds of heaven. Fear God and esteem him, honor him. Those are the ones he makes his treasures. And it goes on to say Yahweh will spare them as his own son. You see, those who have called upon Christ, repented and trusted in Him, are His very own children. We are His sons and daughters in 2 Corinthians 6.18. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. John 1.12, But to all who did receive Him, who believed in His name, He gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Asa, he will make his children. He will make his treasures. Galatians 4, verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. He will spare us as his own because that is what we become in Christ and here is the final promise Yahweh makes in this chapter then you shall again discern between the righteous and the wicked between one who serves God and one who does not serve him and you see the contrast here of where the wicked the critics of God were calling the proud blessed and the testers of God were getting away with it and they were unable to discern good from evil. Yahweh gives to His children the mind of God. Now this is not omniscience. But the Lord allows His children to know Him. To understand His word. And to approve and agree 
with what he says. You see, that's not natural. It's not natural that we should desire the things of God and approve what is written here. Here's what is natural. Titus chapter 1, verse 15, it says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Nothing is pure. But even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. And that, is, that resounds when you share the gospel. Everybody wants to profess that they know God, and they love God, but exactly like this says, in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. That is the natural man. That is where I was. To the great extent. Fully. Romans 1.28 And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And if you'll go to Romans 1.28 and read on through that, you will see this, this cascade of the symptoms that come when a man has a broken, debased mind because he refuses to honor God. What God promises here is a great gift. It is a supernatural gift. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2 it says, For who has known the mind of God or the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. That is something that should keep us praising and thanking God for eternity. Listen to John 15. No longer do I call you servants for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my Father. I have made known to you. It is right here, brothers and sisters. Study to show yourself approved to God. A workman who does not need to be ashamed. Rightly dividing understanding. Cutting the word of God. In finishing Malachi 3, I want to review and look at six things Yahweh has done and promises for those who fear and honor Him in life and speech. First of all, He gives them special attention. Secondly, He carefully discerns their conversation. Thirdly, He records their personal names in his book of remembrance. Fourth, he makes them into his own treasured possession. Fifth, he treats them as his own dear son. And sixth, he gives them the mind of Christ. I'd like for you, in closing, to turn to Psalm 139. This is a magnificent psalm of David that speaks about the knowledge of God. Please turn in that and follow along. I don't want you to get sleepy and bail out right now because this is, this is priceless. Psalm 139, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. 
You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue. But behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. And if I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me. And your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me. Even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. And that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they all were written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty men. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do not hate them, O Lord, who hate you. And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. And I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. And know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Luke 6. Jesus said this. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good. And an evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth evil. For out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, you have given us these tongues. And James writes about the power and the danger and the purpose of that tongue. We see it throughout your scriptures, Lord. And we see it this morning as those who were critics, complainers, false professors, false believers, false mourners and weepers. Lord, let us not be that. Lord, when we venture into the that's that wickedness. Please pull us back. Or may we have lips that speak of Christ, that speak in purity and holiness, that honor you, Lord. We know you hear us when we are with our children in difficult times. Please remind us of that and speak to us and through us. When we are with our spouses, Lord, may you be the subject of our hearts. When we are among the brethren, Father, may we we speak of Christ with great thanks and praise. Lord, may you enjoy what you hear from the lips of these people. Lead us, Lord. And Father, 
those critics, those even in our midst this morning who, who will not follow you. We pray for a broken heart that they will repent and trust in Jesus and receive the atoning sacrifice work of Jesus Christ that pays for sin and gives righteousness. Please move, Lord. Please be glorified. In your name we pray. Amen.